Good morning, everyone. Greetings. Welcome to another um, First Friday. Wow, I hear an echo up here. Maybe you guys don't hear it, but I hear it. Um, this morning, we have joining us, our, our lecture this morning is by Dr. Carl Lambert, Jr. He received his MD from Rush University Medi Medical College in 2011 and completed his residency at West Suburban Medical Center in 2014. He is now an assistant professor of family medicine and is involved with academic medicine as well as mentorship, recruitment, and retention of minority students into medicine and making Christ known in his everyday life through whatever situation the Lord chooses. He enjoys providing thorough, compassionate, and whole person continuity uh, and preventative care to people from all communities and walks of life as medical director of the Rush University Family Physicians Group. So please welcome Dr. Carl Lambert at this time. Hey, good morning, good morning. It's pretty loud. You can hear me, right? I'm like, yeah, I can hear me. You should be able to hear me, too. So um, just thank you for the opportunity, Wondell, to be here. I love you guys. I was just here last week for the Student Summit, so it hasn't been that long. <laughs> I wanted to start with this. Um, just this is a verse that I think about when I'm with like-minded, Christ-minded people. So every time I think of you, I give thanks to God because you've been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ. It's right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a very special place in my heart. We have shared together the blessings of God. So just thank you all for what you do, and hopefully this is the time just to you know, be with one another and not rush. I know everyone's busy, so thank you for coming at 7.15, 7.30 in the morning. Uh, so how about, I'll start with prayer, and then here's how I see this going. I'll tell you a little bit about myself, which is in itself a little weird. And then just some lessons I've learned along the way through practice, through residency, and you know, maybe in the middle a little bit of a devotion, if you will, and then you know, at the end we can have QA and just, just prayer. That sound okay? Alright, so real, real low key today. Alright, so Father God, uh, in the name of Jesus, just thank you so much for allowing us to see another day uh, with new opportunities that indeed every day deserves a chance. Uh, thank you for these people who are here. Pray for safety and travel and mercy for those who are still en route to work at different destinations. Um, we know you're in the house because wherever two of you are gathered <laughs> in your name, you're in the midst. So thank you for being in this house of people who are trying to be about your business. So I pray that you would uh, anoint my words, help me to say the things that only you want me to say, and anything that is not in you, strike it from their memories. <laughs> pray that it be a good time and just a time of encouragement. So we pray those things and so much more in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just a disclaimer, I like using pictures. I'm a teacher, so I facilitate, so a lot of times I try to get the crowd to participate, so that is fully encouraged this morning, okay? Right. Who am I? So that's, that's kind of a loaded question. So I know if Pastor Brooks read what you might see on like a resume, <laughs> but it's a little bit more than that. And I know it's kind of weird as a healthcare provider to share who I am with people who are also providers and also just working in healthcare. We spend a lot of our time, you know, um, getting information from patients. We get subjective information from patients. It's kind of rare that we share a lot about ourselves in those encounters. We make it about them, isn't that right? But imagine if you had a patient that kind of forces you to engage them at that level. 
and they won't go away until <laughs> you do. All right, so that's what happened to me. I had a patient that really challenged my very identity to its core shortly after residency. So this is the time, this is 2014. Not so not too long ago. Um, you know, finished residency, I had this, this mixed emotions of, oh my God, I'm free, I'm out. Ready to hit the ground running, and also the sense of dread of, oh my God, there's no one to preach up to, there's no one, there's no backup. Um, and I felt a, a, a strong call from the Lord to go back to Harvey. So I'm from Calumet Park, which is a southwest suburb, just key corner that is Harvey. So I remember growing up, it was kind of a little bit of a booming town, but now uh, it's a forgotten city. You look through it, it's, it's riddled with poverty and, and crime, and it's not how it used to be back in the 70s and 80s, where it's just very industrious. So, I felt the call from the Lord to, once I finished my training, to go back and do underserved medicine. So I did that, had great relationships, and really loved my patients, all of them. And, uh, I miss them <laughs> even to this day, but there was one that um, really sticks in my mind. His name is Mr. Denton. I think I got a picture of him, but, you know, he's in his 60s, proud black man, dresses in jumpsuits, strictly jumpsuits, black jumpsuits, black cap, tilted to the side just so. And uh, I can remember meeting him. He was one of my first patients just right out of residency as a primary care doctor. I said, okay, I'm going to be the best PCP ever for this dude. I'm going to walk in there. I got my questions. You know, I know the questions to ask. I know what to do. I go in, kind of locked and loaded <laughs> to give this guy the good care. And I go in and I just kind of put my hand out and say, my name's Dr. Lambert. I'm a pleasure to meet you. And he would lock eyes and shaking hands with him. And the handshake just kind of lingers a little too long. I'm like, okay. <laughs> All right, so uh, he has this bright smile, almost like a sense of pride or, or joy when he sees me into the room, right? And before I can even ask him any questions, he tells me, Doc, sit down. I'm like, oh, okay. Listen to your, your elders, you sit down. <laughs> so he asks me, do you know who you are? And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm going to be your, your primary care doctor. I'm Dr. Lambert. I'm, I'm here to I take care of you if you allow me to be. Leans back in his chair, he shakes his head, he says, nah, that's not who you are, that's just what you do, right? Who are you? And I'm like, I'm a nice guy, I don't know. In the back of my mind, I'm like, you need to, I'm thinking of what test I need to order for this dude, because I don't know where he's coming from. And then he leans in close to me, points, points in my chest, and he says, Doc, you are a unicorn. And then there's silence in the room, I'm just like, I don't know where he's coming from. So keep in mind, this is, this is 2014, okay? Just so happened that the AAMC, the American Association of Medical Colleges, they released this really great report about altering the course, black males in medicine. And there was this really startling statistic in there that I thought about when he said this, this uniform thing. So, you know, despite all the pipeline programs and resources and governmental assistance and all these things that I've even been a part of going through my, you know, training, that, the, that there's one demographic group, black males in particular, where the number of males who have matriculated into medical school, you know, saying 2014 is less than the amount that matriculated in 1978. So 1978 was about 550, 2014 was about 530. So that's just matriculated to medical school. So if you just extrapolate that and think about, well, of those males, who went on to become primary care doctors in numbers is few, okay? So I thought about that. I'm like, well, hey, I mean, Mr. Denton, he's on the money. I guess I am a unicorn. <laughs> so I was like, okay, 
Do I think he read this article, this report, and prep for meeting me? Probably not. <laughs> I think he was just a godsend. I think the Lord was using him to kind of point something out to me. Okay. So sit down and I think about that. I said, okay, that's cool. Uh, yeah, I'll eat a bar. Sure. I asked him, uh, is that a good thing? And then he just kind of, he just leans back in almost like a sage-like way. And he's like, well, Doc, that's up to you, isn't it? It's up to you. Do you think it's a good thing? And, you know, unbeknownst to him, that had opened up this Pandora's box of just emotions and memories that I had long put away of going through my training. There's this unicorn business, because if I were to tell the truth, um, going through training, I did not associate being a unicorn being someone that you rarely see as like this mythical, magical creature, right? Associated with being, you know, unwanted, as isolated, as seen as less than. So it's not a pretty unicorn you see on television shows. It's like a, how did they get here, <laughs> you know? And will they last? So, you know, all I knew that is way back, I wanted to be a doctor, and it started with this picture, right? So this is a, this is, this always creeps into whatever presentation I do with people. <laughs> Probably like, why is this here? So let me explain. Um, when I was a kid, even now, uh, my dad would take me and my brothers to uh, the thrift store, to like the, to the flea markets, if you will, right? And he would say he's very frugal. I'd say he's extremely cheap. <laughs> so after church, we would go do this. He would just, it was like sport to him. He would just go and try to make deals and get clothes that he don't even need <laughs> just to take. So while he was doing that, I would just kind of meander over to the book section. And I found this book when I was like seven years old. And it was just like this Charlie Brown book about anatomy. And I could not put this book down. And I begged him to let me take this book home. Would he let me have it? He said, no, I won't buy it. You got to have it for it. <laughs> you got to have it for this book. So, you know, I don't remember what I said at the time, but I left with that book for free. <laughs> so <laughs> clearly, I, there's something even back then that I knew that I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to do something with people and explaining things to people about their bodies and their health. So I ate that book up. At home, I would even like talk to stuffed animals. I would teach the stuffed animals this book, and my parents were like, well, that's kind of weird, but it's clearly something there. You know, and I was blessed to have family that um, made me feel like I could do anything. It wasn't until higher education <laughs> that I got these counter voices that would say, oh, maybe Carlos isn't, this isn't for you. You know, maybe you need to think about something else. You know, I went through and had guidance counselors that even after filming one, not even film, just like had a C or C minus on an exam in the class and went to strategize and they said, well, probably you shouldn't do that. You know, you should just switch majors altogether. And there was just something in me that said, no, you know, just don't be put down. Keep going, switch up your lineup. Be discerning of who you let in your circle of people that you listen to who actually mean you well. And, um, Thankfully, got through undergrad, went to medical school at Rush, and I'll never forget that day. That was September 3rd, 2011. And uh, I'm in this big lecture hall, and I'm looking around, and trying to see someone that I identify with, and I don't see anyone. So I'm the only black person in my medical school class. So I'll never forget that either. So again, you're this unicorn, and you feel this burden, you feel this, this, this huge pressure to represent all of blackness and, and, and to walk this, this tightrope and play this, this game and all of these things. So, yeah, when Mr. Denton said this, that's what I thought about. <laughs> so, you know, um, I'll move along. This is actually him. <laughs> this is actually him. So, um, 
took me a while to figure out what my identity was, and I'm going to get to that in a second. Um, but God bless him. He followed me from Harvey to Rush. I see him every six months or so. Uh, and again, you know, always wears red and black, and it's his cap. <laughs> and every time I see him, he asks me, do you know who you are? And I say, well, you know, it took me a while to process it, but now I do. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. So I'll tell you why that is. So it starts with the lessons. First lesson that I had to learn going through is identity. Okay? So here's some verses. You know, I couldn't let my identity be wrapped up in what I do or how I look or what people think of me. It had to be rooted in Christ. And it wasn't until I figured that out that I was able to have some pride about myself um, and know that what God had for me was for me and that no one was going to change that. So 1 Corinthians 1, 27, 29. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. So I feel like God chooses things. He chooses, you know, maybe your race in, in society, your race may be seen as less than or foolish. But God chooses those very things that may have once made you feel some shame. Even our sin and our brokenness, he uses that. He says, I haven't salvaged that. You bring that to me, and I, I got a purpose for you that's bigger than what you can even ask or imagine. And I've certainly seen that, even just in this, the few years that I've been in practice. Okay? And then again, the other you read in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught about it in Thanksgiving. Question for the group, right? So again, I like to facilitate. So what happens when you're not rooted in Christ? Just as healthcare professionals and just working at Lawndale, what can happen when you're not rooted? You burn out. Yeah, you, you can. You, if you're not rooted in Christ, you're never rooted in yourself. You like self-sufficiency. Like I got this. I can see 30 patients with 15 problems and socioeconomic issues and social determinants. You burn out. You rely on yourself, and you're only human. For me, you begin to listen to lies from the enemy. That can cause discouragement. You get confused. Or you try to get you get validation from things that really aren't meant to be. If someone says that you're okay, or if you get an award or someone has your back, then you feel good about yourself, but just for a little while. You know, that can turn into a, a, an idol, if you will. Does that make sense? Okay. And then this one. So, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Yes, we're doing Bible gymnastics. I apologize. <laughs> It says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That is why, for the sake of Christ, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. I think that's hard for us to do as, as physicians. And if you're in healthcare, you really want to, you feel like I'm the one that has to have the answers, I'm the one that has to be trained. But at the end of the day, we burnout, we can feel tired, and we have to be rooted and know that Christ is our source and our resource. So, learned that when I worked in Harvey, and I'm still learning that now at Rush, just in different ways, okay? Alright. The blessing of adversity. <laughs> at first, I was like, again, I don't want to go through tough stuff. I just kind of wanted to flow through training and, like, just be under the radar, but clearly that did not happen. I, like, stuck out like a sword from wherever I went. But, you know, I had to think about, like, what's the purpose of all this? And I like the I like this picture. This is a good picture. So it's got you know cross sections of what you love, what you're great at, what the world needs, what you're paid to do. You got passion, mission, profession, and vocation in the middle of your purpose. 
Um, the only thing that I think is missing is your pain, right? A big part of your purpose is your pain. So the things that we try to hide, the things that we're ashamed of, the things that um, people don't even know except you and God, don't be surprised if that plays a part in what you do moving forward. So again, I'm at Rush now and feeling alone back then helps me to minister to students now who feel the same way, right? Feeling that pain of just being the only. So I'm gonna add pain to that as a part of your purpose. So don't hide from that. I have to kind of lean into that and not be ashamed of that. That makes sense? Yeah. All right. So for another thing is adversity fuels your ministry and purpose. I mean, adversity, you know, you got two choices. You can either be a coward, you can be passive about it, you can pretend it's not there, or you can use your walls as a door. You can create into a door to do more and bring people along the way, okay? So these are just some verses that I would meditate on today. You know, you intend to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So when you go through trials, think about what will happen on the other end. If I make it through the storm, what will happen? Like, who will be there? Who are the patients that I can't even see except in my mind's eyes or the people that I'll help that will be helped if I, if I stick it out? Even in clinic days here in Mobile, like, there's so many people, there's so many opportunities to, to, to help others, but you have to stick it out and be rooted. And then 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5, it says, verse uh, 4 in particular, Who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God? So it's very transactional. So God gives us the ministry to reconcile with others. He gives us comfort so that we can give that out. So we're not supposed to hoard it. We're supposed to use struggles and all these things to help others. Amen? Thoughts so far? Anything? <laughs> I feel like I'm talking too much. But... Keep going? Okay. All right. Adversity produces victory. Who wants victory in their life? Not just at your job, but just period. <laughs> you know? So blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord's promised them. And then again, 2 Corinthians 4, we don't lose heart. Even though inwardly we're being, inwardly we're being renewed each day, but we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. So again, these are verses I won't dwell on, but they're just really good to, to, to feed you as you go through just the busyness of the day, all right? All right, here's the second lesson. This is probably like the new devotional part. So this is divine interruptions. Everybody say divine interruptions. Yeah. Who likes to be interrupted? <laughs> Not me. So when I'm in clinic, this is, and this is just full transparency, I like to move. So anything that's an impedance to that, the Lord's have to work with me. Just say, slow down. You know, sometimes I'm getting in your way because I need you to do something that may not have been on your agenda. You got to make my agenda higher than what you had planned. So I learned that right off the bat here. So this is Family Christian Health Center. So I thought that you pretty much know this clinic. So this is in Harvard in my hometown. Similar mission to Lawndale, but just in a different location. So I worked there for a little over two years, and the Lord really just wrecked me and was pulling off things that just had to go away. It was pride, it was selfishness, all these things. So I'm just being honest because it's the truth, all right? And it really had to do with, with not wanting to be interrupted. So um, I did a devotion there a couple years ago about Jesus feeds the 5,000. I will read this because I do have some questions for the group about this. Uh, because this, you know, at that time, this really wrecked me. I was crying for a week. <laughs> I was like, Lord, have mercy on me. So it says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from towns. 
When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into their villages and buy themselves some food. They didn't take care of themselves. <laughs> Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So, huge miracle. There's, a, I mean, there's so much to unpack here. My first, let's see, I got some questions. You know, when's the last time we had a divine interruption? How do you usually feel when they come upon you? Is this for the group? I see someone shaking their head. Okay, I'm not feeling that. What else we got? So, let me explain why you can share this first, right? Um, I had this reputation there that if a patient was beyond their, their grace period, that I'd say, yeah, send them away, or just reschedule them, I'll see them tomorrow, or whatever. <laughs> and there was one day where um, my front desk staff had said, no, Dr. Lambert, you really need to see, need to see this person. All right? I was like, okay, well, just put them in the room and I'll go see them. And it was this, this, this woman, she's probably in her 40s, and she came in, she had fatigue, Really like constitutional symptoms, weight loss, did an exam, which you know she had a breast mass um, that was found to be what stage three breast cancer. Praise God, she's doing okay. That was a whole story in itself. But thinking about that, at the end of the day, I have to really just reflect. You know, we're so busy seeing patients. Like you have to see twenty or thirty patients that day, and at the end we would give our sheets to like our front desk staff. They would account for the patients we saw. And I thought about, like, well, what if, what if the Lord was to do an account on the patients that I see? Like, would he be pleased with what I did? So he could say, yeah, girl, you saw the 20 and the 30, but you didn't see that one. And on his agenda, I wouldn't have done a very good job. And to think that had I been rushing, I would have missed an opportunity to really help minister to a woman who really, really needed it. Probably of those many patients I saw that day, she probably was the one that was the most in need. And I had gotten to such a callous state that I almost missed out, I almost forgot what it is to even be a physician, why I was even in that setting in the first place. And the Holy Spirit really dealt with me big time there. And it was like, Carl, if you don't fix this, I'm not going to use you. <laughs> you don't have some hard times. And I was like, oh my God. So I had to, you know, I had to apologize to my staff. I had to apologize to patients in the past. I really had to do some stuff before I even um, transitioned to rush. You've never been in that situation before. You just were so rushed that sometimes you missed out on opportunities to really minister to people who are in greater needs than, than you. And I feel like Sharon. I see a lot of nodding heads. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. And then this is the other room. So a man healed at the pool of Bethesda. So if you were at the, the student summit, this was actually one of the workshops that we did. So I don't want to belabor this, but this is the man who probably familiar with the story. The man who had been at the pool for 30 some odd years and said, Well, we're putting the end on to do this. And Jesus says, Do you want to be made well? And the guy's like, Well, yeah. And he says, Be healed. So I wonder how.
How many times are we feeling that same way when we're at the pool? How many times do we need Jesus to come to heal us and to be made whole? How long have you been at your own Bethesda? And, and do you want to be made whole? That makes sense? So Jesus had compassion, and lives were changed, paradigms were shifted, and shackles were broken. And guess what? When I give in to divine interruptions, when I say, even if I'm initially frustrated, like, fine, I will, I will do it, and I'll do it gladly. That was a progression. Went from, yeah, I'll do it to, no, that's, that's fine. Like, it's probably something that happened, probably misunderstanding. Yeah, let's happily, I'll see them. These are opportunities for me to really minister to patients. That's a really concrete way to show the love of Christ that even though you're late, many times we're late <laughs> in our relationship with God, we're, we're broken. We don't do what we're supposed to do, but Jesus says, hey, you're right on time. You're right on time. You're not too late. Okay? Another question. These are just a reflection. Do you imitate the compassion of Jesus where you are now? And how so? And do you find your way to someone else's pool of Bethesda? And so how? So just think about those things. Alright? I've learned to be prepared for divine interruptions. Expect and embrace them as they're an opportunity to imitate the compassion of Jesus. So two other verses, Ephesians 2 and 4, we're, Christ, we're, we're God's workmanship. So if we don't represent that, who else will? Okay? And that we're here to do work. I had a co-resident that was just saying, hey, it's hard, but we're here to do this sort of sort of work, even though it can deplete you. Again, our source is Christ, so it's going to be okay. And then finally, when we go through tough times and we have these interruptions, it drives us to meet people at their point of need. There's something very healing, even for me as a provider, to do that. There's an exchange. Like, I feel like I'm helping the patient, but at the same time, I get fed at the same time. So it's kind of an odd paradigm, but I really do feel like this is, I'm doing the Lord's work, and that's good, even though I'm tired and beat down at the end of the day. It's okay. And then I love this. The Christian message becomes authentic. And when you have to suffer, man, that becomes something authentic. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. All right. I'll put this in twice for whatever reason. Okay. Here's the next lesson that I have to learn. Um, taking risks. I do not like taking risks. As a physician, I like to do stuff that tends to work. I don't just give medicine and say, yeah, I think it's going to work. Can't try it. Let's see what happens. Um, but the Lord's been stretching me so far to take risks. And there was a couple things about that. You know, God ordained opportunities. Sometimes they are proposed as a dare. You know, God saying, hey, here's where I want you to go. Are you really courageous and do you have enough trust in me to do that? So classic example of that is Matthew 14, so 25 through 31, right? So it's a, during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. He said, it's a ghost. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sing, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. So, anyone ever felt that way? Like God's calling you to do something, but it's a little scary. It's like out in the deep water. So I had a couple examples of that. The big one was going back to Rush, right? So again, I told you I was at Family Christian for about two years, and um, it was good. I had great relationships, but I got a call uh, about just different opportunities to help with admissions and also to teach. 
and in the busyness of seeing patients, I had almost forgotten about that Charlie Brown book, and there was one day I was driving to work, and I was thinking about that call, and that book, that image came to mind, I pulled over, and I was like, okay, I think this is something that I really need to consider um, going there. But there's a risk with that, so let's, I'll just ask the group, what's the risk? What's the risk of leaving somewhere to go to the unknown? What's the risk? Failure, the unknown. And keep in mind, I had been in Rush. When I left, I was like, I ain't never gone back here. This is great. <laughs> you know, I knew what it was, but I also felt a strong pull for, from the Lord to say, no, I need you to, to go back there. You're on assignment now. Um, there was fear, there was angst. I didn't have great relationships. My first job was wonderful. I had great, uh, I felt like working with family at the time. That was the first, first time I felt that way. My MAs, we fought, we laughed, we cried, all these things. So, Fear of giving that up to go somewhere where I may not have it. Because for me, belongingness and rejection is a huge part of my narrative, and I have to acknowledge that. So facing that again is that made me fearful. Okay? Would I be smart enough to do this? Would I be, you know, keen enough to really meet this challenge? So these are all the fears that I had. But I reflected on a couple of verses. So Nehemiah 1, 1 through 11. I'm not going to read all this except what's in purple. Um, Nehemiah is one of my favorite books because it's just he's a go-getter. And he had the heart to go somewhere <laughs> where he was needed. He asked, how are my people doing? And they said, not so well. And he was moved to actually go back and do something about it. And so now I happened in the month, it's just left the 20th year as I was in Susa, the Citadel. Then Hannah and I, one of the brothers, came with, with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That's kind of how I felt about Rush. It's like, well, how are the minority students there? And I said, well, there's not really anyone there to mention them. There's not a lot of residents. There's definitely not a lot of faculty. So and that, that made me irritated. I had like a spiritual discontent about that. So that overpowered my fear to go back. I was like, well, if we don't go back to dark places, then they'll never change. So does that make sense, you follow me? So I had that initially, and then this is kind of a pastor book's story, in a way. <laughs> CCHF, you guys go to the CCHF conference, have you heard of that? So I think, I forget what you got help me. It was when you did a plenary about don't get off the wall. You remember that? Yeah, stay on the wall. So as soon as I had made a decision, like, okay, I'm going to go to Rush, I go to the CCHF conference and Pastor Rose is preaching, don't get off the wall. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my God, am I being a traitor now? I'm being a traitor. You know, I don't know what I'm doing, God, please help me. And I thought about this, GPS. Anybody use GPS? Yeah, anybody just get lost wherever they go? I'm really bad with directions, so bad that um, one Christmas, I had asked for a variety of things, my family decided to give me GPS, which made me very upset. I was like, I don't want this for Christmas, but clearly they had it, they, they knew like, yeah, you need some help. And I was reminded of the GPS system, right? So when you get lost, usually there's like a pause that says rerouting, 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 and that's when you get back on track. So when I thought about that, plus the, the spiritual discontent that I had about what was going on in Rush, I knew that even if this was some egregious mistake, one, 
I see new things. I would learn a lot of new experiences apart from where I've been. And then God would put me back on route, even if this was a mistake. So I said, okay, I trust you, because you'll reroute me. I don't think that I'll ever just, you know, turn away and God will ever, ever use me again. I said, no, he can use you wherever you are. So I said, okay, I'm ready to take the risk and go. You guys follow me? This is another big verse because I almost took it for granted being a, a faith-based institution that patients tend to come and they, they know what's up. Like, probably I've run into some Christians here, <laughs> probably a Longdale Christian or family Christian. Going to rush, that's not really a guarantee. It's kind of like you do what you do. That's your life and that's fine. So this is a challenging verse. Like, you're the salt of the earth, but the salt loses its saltiness. How can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, the town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither can people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So I thought about that like, well, if you go to Rush, um, you may be losing that safety net of kind of being a presumed. Christian organization, but man, you'd be able to shine your light in a pretty big way if you allow the Lord to do that. So um, these verses and just these images help me kind of overcome that hump and actually make the move to rush. So I did that. And we already kind of talked about what are the risks. So when you're in academic medicine, there's a couple of other risks. And I put my little spin on this. So John 12. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders so leaders could be professors, students, staff, colleagues, right? Believed in him. That's Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, which could be just deans, other people in your university, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they love human praise than praise from God, more than praise from God. So when I first got to Rush, um, um, I was given this opportunity to speak to the first year class, so about 130 students. It was a big, big lecture hall. So, um, and they gave you this prompt of you can just talk about why you, why you become a physician. A lot of doctors turned it down because you know we don't really like to speak publicly, and as a bunch of students, we don't want to look silly. But I felt like the Lord was saying, no, this is an opportunity to speak about yourself and actually say that you're a Christian. The Lord said, no, don't just say why you're a doctor. Say that you're a Christian in front of 130 some students that. I don't know them, they don't know me. <laughs> so I felt this risk, like, well, what will my colleagues think? Well, my students think I'm some just weirdo or just like, you know, obsessed with God or whatever. So all these just weird thoughts came to mind. Anyone relate to that? That you're in a position where you feel like you gotta, you gotta do this. You just feel compelled and you can't shake it. So I said, yeah, I'll do that. And I talked to the students and I, I kind of fumbled through it. I don't, you know, I don't remember fully everything that I said. But at the end, I did say, um, you know, the reason why I'm a, a, a physician is because Christ has redeemed me. And I feel like the Lord has used me in a mighty way um, to help patients. And I talked about some experiences from family Christian. And that I feel like the Christian perspective helps me to be a good doctor and connect with people in a very unique way. So I said something along those lines. And I'll be lined out there. <laughs> ran out of it. Uh, and you know, I said, okay, God, I did that. I don't know what's really to come of that. This is a picture um, of one of my small group sessions. So one of my favorite things that I do at Rush is I get to teach in small groups with our first years. Um, pretty unique, it's like a flipped classroom approach where you are like a guy on the side. The students don't really have big lectures anymore. 
it's broken down, we just go over cases with them. So all these students were at this thing that I did when I spoke to them, and we spent a good semester together, the same group. Um, and I can't even tell you the many ways that the Lord used that, that act of faith to start conversations that I would have with students. So I would go early, sometimes I would stay late, and they would come up and just say, hey, what's up with that speech? Or, you know, is it true? Or did you really come from a Christian organization? Or why did you do that? You know, um, and it just so happened that at the end of this semester, um, they made this, they, they painted this, actually created this thing. So then the power of the Lord was with him healed. So Luke, Luke 5 and 17, I was like, who, what made you all do this? So um, I knew that some of the students in my small group were Christian, but they said, no, Dr. Lambert, it was the, the, the ones who don't even identify with Christ yet who made the, the effort to do this. <laughs> Just based off of that, that speech that I gave, they said they were moved and they started to kind of question and think more about their own spirituality and their own way of kind of meeting God that they felt compelled to make this pain. So again, little risk, you never know how that can cause a ripple effect in other people's lives, even if you're fearful, do it. So this is a great example of that. Again, does that make sense? It's a little smeared because I cried on it, <laughs> to be honest with you. All right. Some other lessons learned. Um, love for subject and love for student. So I love medicine, I love the intricacies of the human body, I've already talked about that. But now I've moved into a space now saying that I really love my students. One of them is here right now, I really love my students. So even when I'm in my small groups, I, I had a challenge to say, you know, you always do these icebreakers whenever you're in things, right? So you know, I said, tell, tell me three things about yourselves. And I felt the Lord wanted me to say during those things, like, I'm a Christian. And hopefully, the way that I um, connect with you or the way that I treat you, it becomes distinct that um, the faith that I profess is actually active in my life. So it's easy for me to say that to you guys, but to do that in a small group with students is kind of hard. You know, you, you kind of put yourself out there. It's like, now they're going to watch you to make sure that you're doing that. So this phrase helps to guide love for subjects. So know your subject. Love medicine, learn as much as you can, be humble about that, and then also show love for your students. So that's kind of what I've been figuring out. Like, well, how do, how do you love people well? How do you love students well? Because it could be a little bit different from just loving your patients well, right? Thoughts? So th I just thought this was a funny meme. I like funny memes. So every time I have a, a session, I ask them, do you have any questions? They say, no, 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 we got it. One minute, minute later, this is what they're doing. <laughs> So as they get started and they're all along, I'm like, I thought you guys didn't have any questions. So here's some things that I've been seeing. One, going early. Um, a lot of, when I first started teaching, some of the, the teachers said, um, Carl, don't go early, don't ever go early. It's murder. You're going to be sitting in the room, they're going to be looking at you. You're going to be looking at them, it's just going to be silence. You don't have anything to relate to them about. You're old, they're young, don't, don't go early. But I said, no, I'm going to go early anyway, because I live about an hour and some change away from rush. So my commuting time, I, I just tend to get to class like 15 to 20 minutes early. So again, the conversations that I have with students is just amazing. So again, I had one student, we talked about God's relationship as far as like sexuality, how you rectify that. Um, also, there are students who are Christian, but they're afraid to really say it. And I had times to like pray with students before exams, before quizzes, just all these just random opportunities just to kind of sprinkle in how faith is informed in my career and my, my daily goings with students. So going early has been extremely powerful. 
um, allowing students to see me in real life. So I have students in class, but I also have them when I see patients. They're beside me. I'm sure at Longdale you have that, so yes, students with you all the time. So that's precepting. So using precepting as discipleship. So students see me break down. They see me pray with patients. So um, I try to instill with them the ability to, again, which I put here, inspire, equip, and, and be out there as servant leaders, not just having content, just knowing things, but also using that to actually minister to people fully, including spiritual. I mean, you ask all sorts of questions to patients, so um, I want my students to be more comfortable asking about spiritual matters as well, okay? And then, entrusting to carry on, and also just meeting with them, just not just not just as a teacher, but like I'm a real person, so we can hang out, we can get a meal, we can talk, not just about medical stuff, but there's stuff that's going on at home. That I care about that, because that's gonna affect how you get through school and become a physician as well, okay? Um, seeing work as a reconciliation. Um, if you're in an underserved area, and even though Rush is on the west side, they can probably do a little bit better of a job <laughs> with this, but seeing work as reconciliation and instilling justice and what you do is something that I try to instill in, in my students as they present with me. And also lamenting, lamenting about how things are not good and, and wrestling with like, well, why are we in this state of affairs? Why do we have a system that works the way that it does? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 7. It says, sharing the suffering is a good soldier in Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules, and it's a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the world will give you understanding in everything. I think to have these three qualities is great for whatever you do, but certainly healthcare. You gotta have these this, this sort of tenacity and just steadfastness in what you do. Okay. I'm not gonna read all this, but this is just I think this is something that's a mission for all of us, especially if you work with somewhere like Lawndale. It says, you know, loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, that the Lord will allow us to do that. He will guide you, he'll satisfy you in these things. You call, he will answer. So um, sometimes I give these verses out to students. So usually these are my therapy students. Um, and then finally, again, we go over spiritual history. So in you know, the therapy students, they have to do a rotation at outpatient clinic. So usually my job is to kind of coordinate the schedule and also talk about spirituality and, and how you can get a spiritual history and that that's okay. And just different history-taking tools, okay? Anyone ever heard of grace prescriptions? Yeah, so some of this is kind of borrowed from that. This was published in the American Academy of Family Physicians lesson. Oh, this is grace prescriptions type stuff. Just ways to broach questions of spirituality with your patients. So, you know, there's the FICA, there's hope questions. So asking patients what gives you hope, are you part of a religious uh, community? Do you have beliefs? Can we talk about them saying, hey, well, that's important to me too, or if you ever go through hardship, let me know. Uh, I tend to pray for patients or pray for them, me and my wife. And if there's concerns, you can tell me that we'll do that. Make sense? So I guess it sounds a little bit like making these things less weird for students has been really helpful because they think that it's almost like taboo to even bring this up, okay? Here's some of the benefits of doing that. So, I mean, it's, it's incredibly powerful and enriching to talk about spiritual matters with your patients. Um, it's not illegal. <laughs> it's totally fair game. You build trust and rapport. You broaden the relationship you have with your patients. And it helps them to tap into an effective source of healing. And then again, as a physician or a healthcare professional, 
it provides you a new old resiliency and you can grow as you move forward and become more confident in doing those things. Make sense? Okay. All right, I think this is the last lesson because I think we're, we're doing okay on time. I think. It'll come. So this is what I want. Every day deserves a chance. Everybody say, every day deserves a chance. Every day deserves a chance. I don't know about you. Some days I wake up and I already am just throwing that day away. But I know this day's going to be the best. <laughs> like I got, so I know this patient's coming at the end of the day and they always challenge me. I like, I've already nitpicked the day apart. I just, just, just decided this is going to be a wash. It's going to be a mess. Well, I learned that every day deserves a chance, no matter how you perceive it. So again, sometimes we're on E. And there's many reasons for that. Like we can operate out of margin. We try to do things in our own strength and so on. So here's another, another uh, passage I want to read about this. So Jesus provides a miraculous catch of fish. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out to the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon said, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. I'm behind in my charts. <laughs> I've, got, you know, I've got one picture here, there's four people waiting on it. But because you say so, I will let down. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, from now on you will fish for people. I love this passage because this is a redemptive passage, right? Because what had happened prior to this, anybody know? Well, I'm trying to remember, isn't this, I think this happens after he had denied Jesus, isn't this right? No? Oh, never mind, sorry. <laughs> well, this still is still redemptive because, one, they could have been arrogant about this. They could have said, well, I'm a fisherman. I know what I need to do. Why am I taking orders from you, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, trust me. And they have, they have humility to say, but because you say so, I'll let, I'll let down the nets. They gave it a chance. They gave this a chance. Amen. And they, they had a reward that was far greater than what they probably would have done on a regular day of fishing. Do I see that? So just some things to ponder. What is your first thought when you run out of fuel? And how do you respond? Is it like the disciples in the previous passage? That said, no, it's late, they need to go away. Or is it more of like, oh, okay, well, he says so, we'll do it, even though I'm tired. Any thoughts? Depends on the day. Sometimes you get it right, <laughs> and you, you say, because you said so. Mm -hmm. Some days you get not right, and you're like the disciples in Matthew 14, and you get home, and you know, God takes you to the bridge there, and you get it right next time. Mm -hmm. I found to be a moving target for me. Like, yeah, some days I get this right, and then some days I have to just, at the end of the day, take an inventory of, like, God, like, is there something that I missed today, and how can I be better the next day? All right? And then similar vein, how do you approach frustrations in your everyday life? Um, having a nevertheless attitude is powerful. 
Um, I think that's warfare, really, against if you're talking about spiritual warfare of the enemy. Um, the enemy wants to tire you out, really, and discourage you. But if you have a nevertheless attitude, man, you can do amazing things. You can have a great catch. All right? Some other things that I do when I'm depleted, I look back at previous victories and miracles he's done in my life. And that just makes me excited. Things that he's done in my patients' lives. Because, again, I see so much struggle and pain. And yet, these patients that I encounter are so resilient. And it allows me to journey with them and just see God's goodness job, not just in my life, but also in theirs. And that helps me to go on and help other people. Praise is just an acronym. Praise, repent, ask. Ask God. Sometimes we don't get because we don't ask in the first place. And then yield. Finally, rely on the Holy Spirit. And then remember your community. Um, this sort of work requires community to team. So encourage one another and continue to serve. Look out for one another. There was a first Friday several months ago that talked about this, about having community and transparency in what you do or what you do. And lead to, to burnout. And finally, we have to work on this. Don't grumble, don't complain, <laughs> uh, because that doesn't do anything. That just saps your energy even more. Amen? All right. Comfort. And then this is the second to last slide I have. So it says, Comfort for God's people. It says uh, Isaiah 40. It says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow old or grow tired and weary, and young men seldom fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And this is, I think this is my last slide. I don't have a big, you know, fancy, you know, creative way to end the talk, but at the summit last week, there's a lot of talk about Wendell Berry. It's a very famous novel, so I thought I would end with a quote from him. He said, um, the word help, in fact, comes from the same Indo-European root as heal, whole, and holy. To be healthy is literally to be whole. To heal is to make whole. I don't think mortal healers should be credited with the power to make holy. But I have no doubt that such healers are properly obliged to acknowledge and respect the holiness and value of all creatures, or that our healing involves the preservation, per, per, preservation in us of the spirit and the breath of God. Sense of wholeness is not just a sense of completeness in ourselves, but also the sense of belonging to others and to our place. It's the unconscious awareness of community, I believe, help is wholeness. So that's what I leave you with. So uh, hopefully this has been encouraging what I've shared, my prayer for myself and for all of us is that we would be those sort of providers that doesn't just cure diseases or, or, or give medicine, but that we would minister and create wholeness in people's lives because patients come broken, we come broken, so hopefully you let the Lord pour into you so that you can pour out to others and that's a mutual healing, if you will. So that's my encouragement on this Friday and thank you for letting me come and speak to you.